Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello. 2022, as always, I'm talking to you from San Francisco. It's unusually hot here. It's not that hot, but unusually hot for San Francisco, which means the rest of the state is suffering an extreme heat wave. Uh, forecasters say that the current Californian heat wave is expected to be longer and peak even higher. Surprise, surprise. Um, another headline from the Washington Post suggests that the unrelenting September heat wave has gripped not just California, but the entire western part of uh, the United States. Here we have an image. Uh, it's Labor Day here today. Uh, dangerous heat wave, uh, all extremely troubling. It reminds me of a show I did last year with Lizzie Johnson, who wrote a book called Paradise about uh, the fire, the wildfire in Northern California. Uh, we seem to be on the edge, perhaps the tipping point of an apocalypse when it comes to the climate. It's not just California, of course, it's the entire world. One man who's given a great deal of thought to this um, is Bill McGuire. Uh, he's one of uh, the most, uh, I think, influential and perhaps in some ways pessimistic, but realistic scientists. His new book is Hot House Earth, uh, an, an Inhabitant's Guide. Uh, and Bill is joining us from uh, the Peak District today. Uh, Bill, welcome. Um, does your okay. book suggest that we simply have to start living um, in a hot house Earth? Uh, you had a piece in The Guardian a month or two ago suggesting that 40 degrees in the UK will seem rather cool, perhaps, in the future. Well, absolutely. And that's not my forecast. That's that's the forecast of, of climate models in general that, you know, now we've now we've broken that 40 degree barrier in the in the UK. We'll just see it happening more and more often. And I think the main point I make in the book is that we can't now dodge dangerous climate change. And that's defined really as a global average temperature rise of uh, more than one and a half degrees compared to pre-industrial times. Now, to actually uh, avoid that, we need emissions to fall 45% in the next 90 months or so by 2030. And in the real world, that is just not going to happen. Uh, you've talked about something called climate, uh, or we've, you've talked to, in terms of this climate change about a suicidal joyride. Is that a summary of the book, um, Hot House Earth, Bill? Are we on a suicidal joyride? Are we simply not willing to face up to the consequences of our actions? Um, yeah, those aren't my words. They're the words of a, of a, a newspaper um, headline writer. But but in a way, we are at the moment because we're, we're simply not acting. Um, emissions are still going up year on year on year. All right, we have uh, increased percentage of renewables in the energy mix, more electric cars, et cetera, et cetera. But the bottom line is what the emissions are doing, and they're doing nothing except going up. So at the moment, yes, we are on, I suppose, what you could call a suicidal joyride. And we need to come off that as soon as we can. Uh, Bill, there's been a lot of self-congratulation, general celebration amongst progressives on the latest Biden 
bill on um, dealing with inflation and, of course, uh, electronic uh, electric vehicles and solar energy. Um, are we whistling in the wind here? Is, the, is there anything that we should celebrate about Biden's latest bill? Well, I think it's it's great that it's it's actually got through, but you know these are still pledges and promises. Um, we've had lots of those at all the COP meetings that have gone on over the last several decades, all 26 of them. Lots of promises, lots of pledges, but emissions carry on going up. So it would be great if Biden's initiative proved to be successful and if emissions in the US could come down by 30, 40% or even more. Um, but, you know, I'll wait and see what happens. We did a show, uh, we've done so many shows on this bill recently with Charles Sable, who, who said to fix the climate, we need to rewire um, not just uh, our brains, but our economy and our democracy. You wrote uh, recently or suggested that capitalism won't fix the climate crisis. Is this the problem? Certainly, um, we've had a number of people on the show over the years, Tim Jackson, whose work I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, Jason Hickel as well. Is the problem capitalism, Bill? Yes, I think so. I mean, it's, you know, a system that's predicated on short-term profits and, let's face it, greed um, is what the problem is here. It's caused uh, in, uh, climate change, it's caused the climate uh, collapse that we're seeing at the moment, and I can't see any way in which it can help us get out of it. So I think when you see climate activists arguing for system change, not climate change. So they're, they're absolutely right. We need a system that, that works for the greater good, not for the, the good of the rich and a, and a very small elite. I've heard this so much, Bill. It sounds like the kind of thing that people talk about in university seminars. It's simply not realistic. What happens if we don't do it? What are the consequences, which seem extremely likely in, real, in, in, in reality, for better or worse? Well, I, I normally tell people that uh, A, climate change won't solve the climate emergency, and B, if it doesn't, it won't survive the climate emergency. So either capitalist, capitalism changes or it goes. Either way. What do you mean it goes? I mean, it can't just go. It's a market system. What's it going to be replaced with? Well, you know, I, I don't think people really understand how serious climate collapse will be. It's societal collapse. Capitalism doesn't really function uh, in a chaotic system like that. So we won't have stock markets if we carry on the way we're going. We won't have exchange rates. We won't have um, large corporations. These things will be of the past. If we don't change the way we, we are living now, then these things won't survive because our world will be simply chaotic and it will have broken down from a global community into lots of tiny isolated communities just trying to survive i mean that sounds terrible but you know at the moment i, I see no prospect of that being avoided bill later this week i've got my old friend douglas rushkoff on the show who has a new book out suggesting that the very wealthy particularly the tech elite the tech billionaires are preparing to escape the earth to find other planets to colonize and settle on um, is this one of the consequences? Is this one of the explanations of people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk's obsession with space to actually escape this earth? Well, 
it's difficult to say. I mean, it, it isn't just escaping to other planets. I, I've had, a, I've seen some reviews, early reviews of, of the book, and and it's clear that a lot of the, a lot of these people are also planning sort of uh, guarded redoubts in New Zealand and other out of the way places where they can barricade themselves in, uh, and they hope avoid the consequences of societal breakdown. One thing I do, do think it, it signals is that these people who are making money out of the rest of us see the way things are going. And um, in, in a sense, that's confirming what I, what I said a few minutes earlier, that at the moment we look as if we're heading for uh, a breakdown of uh, certainly society as we've known it for several hundred years. So, you know, they, they may not be migrating to other planets, but they certainly, certainly see what's coming and certainly don't want to be part of it. Bill, do you have a, a year in mind? One of the years that has intrigued me is 2045. That's the year that um, white uh, America will no longer remain in a majority in this country. Is there a particular year, perhaps symbolic or otherwise in the future, in which all this is going to change unless we actually address the crisis? Well, I would have said maybe by mid-century we'll really start to see um, the impact of global heating on, on the planetary system. But I've been staggered by the speed with which uh, global heating, a small temperature rise of just over one degree C, is now translating into extreme weather right across the planet. So I think as early as 2030, we will, we will see serious impacts on everyone uh, and climate breakdown will be insinuating itself into every aspect of our lives very, very soon. That's just a decade hence. Um, but, you know, things are just happening so quickly now. In your last book, you distinguish between uh, uh, doomists and appeasers, um, people who suggest, and we've had many of them on the show, suggest, well, through capitalism, through the market, things can get fixed. Why are appeasers in your mind so dangerous? Well, I, I don't think we're going to act as we need to act to tackle the climate emergency until we realize how serious it is. And if people play down the seriousness, then uh, the man in the street, the woman in the street simply will not take on board how bad the situation is and they will not act and they won't push their governments to act. So we have to tell it like it is. We have to level with people and say, this is a catastrophic situation we're facing. We have no means of solving it. Um, geoengineering will not solve it. Carbon capture on a global scale will not solve it. We need to do things within the next 90 months. We need to change the way we live, slash emissions within eight years, less than eight years, or we're in deep, deep trouble. But Bill, you know that's not going to happen. 90 months is seven years. Liz Truss just became prime minister uh, in your country, in the United Kingdom today. She's talking about tax cuts, trying to innovate, trying to make more change. Um, you know as well as I do, it's not going to happen. Yes, I do know it's not going to happen. That's why my book's called Hot House Earth and Inhabitants Guide, because we're going to be living and our children are going to be living and our grandchildren are going to be living in a world which is chaotic, um, suffers from extremes of weather, and in which things are beginning to break down. That's unavoidable now. We can't dodge dangerous climate change. But that doesn't mean we don't act. We have to act as quickly as possible to stop dangerous becoming cataclysmic. 
I want to get to what we do because obviously that's critical. Um, but uh, I'd like to also talk about the global side. You know, we talked about California. It's pretty hot here. But there are some countries, uh, it seems, today in which um, the consequences of, 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 of your catastrophe are, are, are quite self-evident. Pakistan, for example, where I think a third of the country now is underwater. How much worse do things have to get? Um, or, or do they have to get really bad in a place like America um, or Germany or France or China for us to act? Yeah, I think you're right. I think, you know, we, uh, terrible as it is, I think too many people in the developed countries who've actually caused this situation in the first place don't seem too bothered about massive floods or huge storms in other parts of the world, uh, in the majority world, as we call them. Uh, so we do need to see these sorts of things happening on this scale in, as you say, Europe, the United States, Australia, China, before we'll uh, even start to sit up and take notice. What do we make of the the appeasers? We had one on the show, David Victor, who talks about uh, good news on the climate front, why things aren't quite as apocalyptic as some believe. I think Victor was credible, but I've had other people on the show who simply represent trade organizations of one kind or another. Um, are these people selling out humanity, the appeasers, Bill? Yes, they are. There is no good news on the climate change front, none at all. Um, no, I always look, as I say, to the bottom line, what are emissions doing? They're going up. Apart from a small blip during the pandemic, they're going up as quickly as ever. So, you know, we're making no inroads at all at the moment. What about the way in which we seem to, if not confuse, make the conversation about the environment also about politics? The latest environmental catastrophe in America is about a Jackson, Mississippi water crisis. The BBC leads with uh, environmental racism and certainly the impact of the water crisis on black Americans is much worse than on white Americans, but it seems to only have become major news when it's affected white Americans. Do we need to separate the politics, the racism and the other isms and just focus on the environment itself, Bill? Um, not, I don't really think that's true. I mean, you know, there's something called climate justice which means that uh, even if we do manage to transition to a, a world where emissions start to come down, where um, the, the political and economic systems change, we need to look after everybody. So, you know, those isms are important. We need to look after racial minorities. We need to look after the poor. We can't just kick people, for example, out of the fossil fuel industry um, and just leave them uh, without jobs, without homes. Um, while we develop renewables, we have to think about uh, minorities and those who are who are vulnerable and who aren't a, as well off. And so, you know, that's a critical part of it. Yeah, yeah I, um, I mean, my, my question was probably poorly phrased. I, I certainly didn't mean that we, we should ignore those things. But m my point is, is that um, we is there too much of a preoccupation on the political and not enough on the environmental. I guess what I'm saying is, um, does this crisis have to affect the rich before anything changes? And, and in terms of Rushkoff's thesis, maybe the rich believe that they can escape this whole thing. Um, I suspect that they do think that. Um, 
and you know we 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 can uh, we can uh, sideline them we can marginalize them if we get enough people on board uh, and clamoring for change from the national governments then you know we can marginalize the one percent and still have things happen so um, in that sense you know we we don't need them on board necessarily but that doesn't mean and that that still involves politics in the sense that we need to get our governments to change tack. I mean, in the UK, as you pointed out earlier, with the, the new Prime Minister, Liz Truss, she is doing almost, or planning to do, it seems, everything uh, everything against green measures rather than pushing them forward. So, you know, we need to be on board politically, all of us, to, to make sure that doesn't happen. It's happened over 30 years. A, a film was made in 1982, uh, actually 40 years, Koyanis uh, a film about uh, how we're destroying the world. Of course, it's not the only film like that made, but warnings were made 40 or 50 years ago. Did everyone just ignore them, Bill? Um, it's, it's worse than that, actually. The first recognition that carbon dioxide was going to be heating up the planet came in eight, about 1850, or a little after 1850. We've known about the warming effects of carbon dioxide on our planet and the potential it has to to heat the world so that it, it's unlivable. We've known about that for over uh, 150 years and we're still not acting. It's extraordinary. I mean, it's over 30 years now since the first COP meeting. Um, we've seen very little progress. And there's a great plot that shows all the COP meetings coincident with the uh, carbon emissions. And you can see COP after COP after COP, and then you see the emissions going up and up and up. So it's as if nobody's listening. Nobody wants to listen. Nobody's acting. We're all still living perhaps in the 20th century. We had the Berkeley economist uh, Brad DeLong on the show on Friday talking about his new history of the 20th century, which began in uh, as an economist in 1870 in terms of the beginnings of growth and ended in 2011. Um, is the 21st century, Bill, is it defined by this crisis? which is more than just an environmental crisis. It's a crisis of economics, isn't it? Yes, uh, climate breakdown affects everyone and everything. Um, it's a multiplier also of other things. So it's a multiplier of wars, a multiplier of, of famine, um, civil strife. Uh, whatever happens, climate breakdown will make it worse. And, and I, that's clearly going to define this century. I mean, it's perfectly possible that within 80 years, sea levels will be two meters or more higher. That on its own will cause catastrophic consequences right across the planet. By 2050, we need 50% as much food, but agricultural yields may be down by 30% due to climate breakdown. That's a recipe for um, societal breakdown on a huge scale, global famine, civil strife, war. Nobody will be immune from that in the US and the UK, uh, or any developed country. We had uh, George Monbiot on the show recently as a new book. I'm sure you've read it, Regenesis, yeah. uh, How to Feed the World Without Defiring the Planet. I also host a show called the Regenerate Forum, which deals with regenerative economics. We talk to a lot of farmers uh, experimenting and pioneering regenerative uh, agriculture. Is that one fix, Bill? What do you think of Monbiot's thesis? I think it's great, and I, I've, I've read a little bit about regenerative farming. It's fantastic, um, but you know, at the moment, it's happening on such a tiny, tiny scale. Um, if we can uh, 
adapt things, change things so that that can operate on a more of a global scale, we might might have some chance of at least stopping the dangers becoming cataclysmic. But as usual, all these possible solutions which work uh, okay on a small scale, we've never actually tried to adapt them to the, the planet as a whole. So you know, who knows where we're going to end up with this. But you know, I'm a great fan. You've been warning about this, uh, us about this for, for years, Bill. Global catastrophes, waking the giant, surviving Armageddon. You're also a signature uh, for a science oath. Is that where we should start? I mean, what, what difference is science? What, I mean, scientists have been signing these oaths, these, these letters for years. They don't make any difference either. Well, all scientists haven't been signing them. I mean, one of the issues is that that many, many climate scientists um, do the work, publish the work, um, but don't say too much about it in public. And I've said, I'm on record as saying that I know climate scientists who are far more scared in private than they are in public. And they will say things in, in conversations down the pub that they would never say uh, or put in a paper or, or make in a public statement or an article. And what we need is for all climate scientists to be up there shouting about how, what a terrible situation we're in and why we need to act now. It's no good just writing the papers, doing the research, publishing it, and then getting on with something else and keeping your head down. Um, not By no means all are like this, but there are too many still, and they need to shout from the rooftops. A lot of people are going to be listening, watching this bill, and I'm feeling quite ill about the future, particularly for their children and grandchildren. What can they do? What can ordinary people do? Is it enough to recycle, to buy an electro, uh, electric vehicle, to buy your book? I mean, what can people do? Well, you know, we know what people can do individually, and I think all that information's out there, but that can only take us so far. Um, to make a dent in emissions, a serious dent in emissions, there has to be government action on a global scale. And that means we need to put governments into power who will act. So if you live in a country where the government is doing nothing, get that government out. Use your vote. Um, use your vote on a local scale right the way up to a national election. Also join an organization, a ground roots organization, grassroots organization that is, is taking action. I mean, um, Extinction Rebellion has pushed climate change way up the agenda more than than any number of climate scientists, although they base their, their, their work uh, on climate scientists' research, they still have, in terms of the public profile, they've really pushed the problem up there. So find out about your local Extinction Rebellion group, join it and, and act, um, help them to act. And it'll make you feel better, it'll make, it'll make you feel more positive as if you're actually doing something for your children's future and for your grandkids. What about... And buy my book, of course, yes. Of course, Bill, that goes without saying. Um, buy or steal, I'm not sure whether everybody needs to read it, uh, hot, hot, Hothouse Earth. Uh, what about the traditional environmental parties? I say traditional, they're still not quite traditional, the Greens of Europe in particular. Um, are they models? Are they addressing this crisis um, appropriately in your, in, in your mind? Um, I'm not sure if they're doing everything they need to be doing, but they're certainly preferable to, to other parties who have agendas that are dominated by fossil fuel interests. So I would recommend anybody um, supports and votes for the, the greenest, as it were, um, 
political party in their country or in their state. Um, it shouldn't be difficult by listening to what they say and what they write to determine who that is. There's a generational quality, at least to the doomsday thinking uh, that you present in, in, in your work, uh, particularly in Hothouse Earth. Uh, Greta Thunberg famously has become a, a spokeswoman, I guess, for a younger generation, talks about the blah, blah of uh the international community of uh of these un conferences do they have any value bill is is greta thunberg right about this blah blah of the united nations yeah. and, and and glasgow and all these other accords and protocols she's absolutely right i mean i was at glasgow at cop 26 this year um, there were extraordinary events going on outside um uh, the fringe, if you like, of the conference, very hopeful, very optimistic. Inside, yes, it was blah, blah, blah. There were promises made, there were pledges made, but no legal framework, um, no checks and balances on these things. Uh, and uh, so, that, you know, in my book, there was no progress whatsoever. So she's absolutely right, yeah. How are you personally dealing with it? It must be rather depressing. You're living up in the Peak District, which is a beautiful part of the world. Uh, you're also writing short stories, and you, you remain a, a, a volcanologist uh, studying volcanoes that you asked uh, uh, in, a, in, a, in a previous piece from 2015. Are we ready for the next volcanic catastrophe? Is this current hothouse crisis, has it dwarfed all your other concerns? You're still writing fiction, Bill? Are you still worried about volcanic eruptions or should we forget about that for the moment? I'm still interested in volcanic eruptions, but, but climate breakdown really does overwhelm everything else. But I am focusing more now on writing um, cautionary tales uh, about possible futures. So fiction is something I'm, I'm doing a lot more of. My, my novel, debut novel, Skysy, came out at the end of 2020 and that's now being pitched as a TV series. It's a, an eco-thriller about geoengineering gone wrong. So a, a cautionary tale about what might happen if we interfere and mess about with an already damaged climate. What does fiction offer somebody like yourself that you can't cover in books like um, Hothouse Earth? Well, there's lots and lots of evidence that stories are much better at imparting information than lists of figures and graphs and this sort of thing. Um, now that's, it's a tremendous way of, of getting into people's heads what it might be like living in a climate change planet. And there's, some, there's an increasing number, obviously, of what are called cli-fi works, climate fiction. Um, and um, you know, these tell great stories and they really scare the hell out of people. And I think we need to do that, to be honest, to get them uh, acting as they need to. Well, certainly your new book, Bill, uh, Hothouse Earth, um, an inhabitant's guide. If that doesn't scare people, then nothing will. Uh, what else are you reading these days in addition <coughs> to that sci-fi? I know you're a big admirer of um, Jesse Greengrass's The High House. Yes, I read that one fairly recently, and it's 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 the best example of, of Clive Fi. It's not sort of huge high uh, large scale technologically oriented <laughs> it's about you know a small number of people in a one house in suffolk and how they're affected as as climate change starts to to um, bring flooding to that area 
and as the world starts to fall apart around them. And I think that's that's the sort of cli-fi I like, stories about small groups of people and how they're uh, affected rather than big, wide-scale technological uh, studies. So that, that's a fantastic book. I'd recommend that to anyone. I know you're also an admirer of Richard Powers, the overstory in particular. It seems like Powers is the most important writer on all this, certainly the most important novelist. What is it about Powers that makes him so, excusing the pun, uh, I can't help it, Bill, powerful? <laughs> it's just extraordinary writing, really. I mean, the overstory isn't overtly a climate fiction book. It's really more about, you know, where we are today and, and how we're contributing to the, the collapse of ecosystems, really. So it's more cli-fi with an E, C-L-I-E-Fi, climate and ecological fiction. But it's just, you know, when, when, once you've got to the end of it, you just think, what the hell are we doing? Why are we doing this? Why are we carrying on doing this? And it's making you think, making people think like that, I think, which makes it so such a fantastic book.